morning, everyone. What's this now? Day four? Day four? <laughs> okay. Just a little aside, just to begin. Um, you may notice that we don't have any um, incense this session. We just got to pack it. But um, it's been a nice, nice little improvisation to uh, offer wildflowers or stems of grass to the to the Buddha for the Dharma talk each day. I've enjoyed the experience of it. The uh, title of today's talk is um, The Stream of Time. We're going to look at the um, subject of fleetingness. But um, to begin with, um, the process of session has been um, pretty much on course as it usually is. And I have to keep reminding myself that this happens. But usually the, the, the first two days is the hardest. Not necessarily in terms of physical pain, but in terms of adapting to the actual process of Zen training. And uh, many people go through the first two days of the session going through what I call slowing the despond. You know, we go through a sense of despondency, you know, and then, it, and then something shifts. I think pretty much all of us have gone through it now and come out the other side. Maybe we might go back into it sometime. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like um, people move through that kind of despondency stage into something different. And what happens as we do session is, is that we're cultivating um, prajna. Uh, prajna is discerning wisdom. Don't think of prajna as necessarily something that just happens when you have some um, you know, flash of enlightenment experience. You're cultivating it all the time, gradually. And what prajna is, or what discerning wisdom is, is being able to discern what is reality and what is the nature of reality and what we think is the nature of reality. And the more you act, actually practice sazen and practice being present with each experience as it, as it passes by, and being drawn into that stream of experience and being drawn into the stream of reality as it, as it is, rather than being so caught up in the thinking and we get that clarity of mind. You can catch it much more quickly in thinking mode right, rather than in reality mode. So you're cultivating prajna as you sit here. And what happens is that we, um, whether we like it or not, we're getting drawn into the stream of time, we're getting drawn into the stream of life. As much as we may try and resist it, it will draw us in. And the more we let go of all of our thinking and our reference points and so on, the more we just get drawn into the stream, which was always there, all the time. A few words about um, mindfulness. And there's a beautiful uh, Zen poem, I can't remember the exact wording of the poem, but it's about um, the, the image of, um, let's say, let's put it in Australian conditions, a, a kookaburra or a pelican flying over a still lake. And, and the bird is reflected in the lake as it goes over, but it leaves no trace. Mm -hmm. 
no trace is left behind, just that fleeting, reflected in the still lake, and then it's gone, nothing remains. And that's the nature of mindfulness, is that the, uh, our experience doesn't leave any trace on the mind when we do mindful, it's just comes and goes, everything comes and goes. The other thing to remember about um, mindfulness is the importance of um, receptivity. Uh, Dogen said that um, the mind going out, you know, and trying to, going out to reality is delusion. The 10,000 things advancing confirm the self in this realization or the awakened one. You don't have to. Mindfulness is a kind of. How do you describe it? It's always paradoxical, but it's kind of a, an active passivity. It's not, it's not going out trying to grab something, take something from life. All you have to do is, is, is sit back and be receptive and open to it, and it comes to you. The sound of the birds come to you, the sound of the rain on the roof comes to you. It's a kind of non-doing, a kind of non-trying, which is not the same as just being caught up in the thoughts, it's being open to experience what is happening. But again, just to simplify it, to cut through all of these, words. In a sense there's no, nothing, it's kind of not, it's not coming to you or you're not going to it, it's just the sound of rain on the roof. Just the sound of rain on the roof, just the sound of wind through the trees. Forget about subject, object, that's all that's happening. And there's a kind of betweenness in things, a sense of connectedness with that experience. So when we're practicing mind, mindfulness, don't don't get caught up in any ideas that you're some kind of um, constant observer in you, you know, and things are going past. It's just observing. It's just a process happening. And it's like a boat going down a river or a log going down a river. It's not ahead of the stream. It's not behind the stream. It's just going at the same speed as the stream. It's just streaming. Streaming of consciousness, streaming of experience. It's one, one thing. Returning a little bit to what I was mentioning yesterday about melancholy and sadness, the nat nature of life is fleetingness, fleetinglessness. Um, that's what we we live in all of the time. It's there all of the time. Uh, when we do session, we become acutely aware of it, that it was there all of the time in the background of our life. And like I said before, we can't help but get, but get caught up in the stream. As much as we may try to resist it, it will eventually draw us in and off we go. And um, as I was talking about yesterday, there can be a kind of a sense of melancholy or, or sadness, you know, to be aware of the fleetingness of life, and the, particularly when we come to human relationships and our, our deep attachments to those that we love, you know, that families, relationships, and so on, friendships, sanghas, you know, eventually will will disperse, you know, uh, and they'll move on, 
everything will come to an end. Wonderful things can come to an end, bad things can come to an end, but all things come to an end. And there can be a kind of melancholy or sadness that comes with that experience. But that's okay. That's just part of the human condition. To experience that melancholy about the fleetingness of life, the experience in itself, in a, it's a, you could say it's suffering, but it's a noble suffering. It's where we add something else onto it and constrict around it. It becomes a kind of heat noble suffering. But the word sad, I discovered, has the same etymological root as the word satiated or satisfied, which means to be full. And to say to have a feeling of, of melancholy around the fleetingness of life is to have to be full, like to have a full experience, a full heart. And um, and to be touched by that kind of sweet <coughs> sweet, ungraspable kind of quality that life has. But when we reflect on it, <coughs> um, I often bring this into session at some point, but in 50 years, probably none of us will be here anymore. So maybe, maybe two, two left, but they'll be in armchairs by then, yeah, in, in wheelchairs, I mean. Yeah. But in 50 years, we, we won't all be here. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe the two who are left in wheelchairs say, oh, I remember when 2012 <laughs> we used to do session at Stroud. <laughs> They've all gone now. They're all gone. <laughs> the rashes are scattered in the ten directions. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we should, uh, we should uh, be grateful for the time we have together. Our lives are like clouds, they're kind of like clouds. Uh, clouds are a good metaphor for the way we, uh, uh, we experience our lives. Clouds, when you look at them, are kind of, they, they look kind of like things, you can see them. They're not very solid, are they? And they, they seem to have, a, they do have a form, and yet they're formless. They're just little molecules of liquid, you know up there floating around in the sky. And they're blown by the wind and they're melted by the warmth of the sun. And they melt back into the empty blue sky. And then another day comes and other clouds form. And then they disperse and go away. And another cloud comes. That's the nature of life. We're like clouds. Mm -hmm. um, that's how they describe Zen monks in Japan. In the old days, they're like clouds. Um, sometimes you get big, solid black clouds, cumulonimbus clouds, you know, they look really solid, like they're going to be here for forever. That's when we have a very kind of solid sense of our permanence of self, you know, kind of big fat, you know, cumulonimbus clouds, it's going to stay here for a long time. But even they get blown away. They don't last very long either. No clouds do. <clears throat> There's some beautiful poetry, um, or fleetiness has inspired some beautiful poetry. Um, some of my favourite lines are from um, Basho, the Japanese Zen poet. 
from his book, um, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Days and months are travellers of eternity, so are the years that pass by. Those that steer a boat across the sea or drive a horse across the earth succumb to the weight of years. I myself have long been tempted by the cloud-moving wind, filled with a strong desire to wander. Beautiful lines, aren't they? Days and months are travellers of eternity. We're all travellers of eternity. We're connected to something much, much larger than ourselves. And uh, Shakespeare says um, from the Tempest, along the same lines, Our revels now are ended, these are acted, as I foretold you, were all spirits, and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temple, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little lives are rounded with a sleep. Or to come back to a, a Dharma expression of the same thing from the Diamond Sutra. Life is like a dream, a phantom, a bubble, or a shadow. They are like dew or a flash of lightning. We should contemplate like this. When we look back in, um, in uh, Japanese, and I've been reading recently um, the work of Hakuin, who's one of the great Japanese Zen teachers, and uh, there's a particular essay of Hakuin's called um, Authentic Zen, and in this essay he just rails and rails and rails against Pure Land Buddhism. <laughs> And he's, he's really passionate about it. He's so despairing, you know, put all this effort and training into Zen monks and you know, they train for three or four or five years and they, they don't feel like they've reached enlightenment. And then they lose faith and they go off to Pure Land Buddhism because in Pure Land Buddhism, Maitreya Buddha will come along and save you for sure, you know, and you'll go to the Pure Land. You know, you'll go to this permanent place of Nirvana, the promise. And people in, in those days in Japan, Hakuin being an example of it in his early years, really had a fear of going to hell realms. It sort of drove them on in their practice. And um, so people would have, have fear driving their practice as well. And uh, so people would give up faith in Zen practice you know, and then look for some kind of permanent solution, look to something outside of them that's going to save them. And so Hakuin would despair of this because he could see that if people really just commit themselves to Zen practice, they'll start to appreciate the fleetingness of life and that's where they find their true home. That's where they find their true awakening. In our life and times, um, even though there are religions and so on which, which promise um, some kind of permanent heaven, um, even then, there may be still 
fundamentalist, mainstream, Islamic, Christian versions of that. But um, I don't think it's really um, religions like Christianity and so on which really are the threat, so to speak, to, to Zen practice. I think that the main threat to Zen practice, you know, in our kind of um, contemporary life, is the three, the three, what I call the three marks of contemporary existence or contemporary society in a relative sense, which is scientific materialism, technology and consumerism. And so it's not so much the psychology of being promised a permanent life, which is really the the thing which distracts people from Zen practice. It's more it's the it's the psychology of distraction. Um, we live in a in an age where we don't really think there's anything permanent. Um, and like in the postmodernist view of the world that everything's relative. But it's as though we distract ourselves through novelty seeking, through consumerism, through technology. Um, that is the threat of Zen practice. In, um, in uh, Buddhism, we talk about the um, three marks of existence. In some ways, I find Buddhist philosophy rather distasteful um, because it doesn't. They have all these categories: the three this and the two this and the four this and the eight this, and they're so obsessed with categories, you know. And the thing that appeals to me about Zen practice, with its sort of emphasis more on the poetic, it just kind of sweeps away the categories. You don't, you don't need more categories. They kind of have their usefulness, I guess. You know, it's, um, you can identify things, but as soon as you put something into a category, you kind of kill the living nature of it. You know? um, but the, th the three marks of existence are um, that life is impermanent, and it's empty, and that there's suffering. Now, this used to confuse me a lot when I was younger, and um, I'm very grateful to. Um, to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for unconfusing me around this. But it always puzzled me that they were the three marks of existence. I could understand how impermanence was a mark of existence and how emptiness was. But I couldn't see how suffering was necessarily a mark of existence when the whole point of Buddhism was the end of suffering. And it was through... Um, through, uh, it would seem that the third one, suffering, is kind of like an outcome when we resist the first two, when we resist impermanence and we don't want to see into the empty nature of existence, our cloud-like existence, that then suffering arises from resisting and holding on. But um, through clarification, through further reading, I've found that there is another version of the three marks of existence. Um, the readings of Thich Nhat Hanh, that there is impermanence and there is emptiness um, and there is nirvana. There are three marks of existence, no suffering. Depends which way we look at it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. 
in one sense, there is always suffering in the sense is that that sense of um, melancholy or sweetness about you know being in this life together and then relationships you know dissolving through time. In a sense, that's a kind of suffering. But like I said before, that's a noble kind of suffering. If we if we allow that energy to come through us, it gives richness and depth to our life. It's only where we resisted it that it becomes that the second arrow, so to speak, rather than the first arrow. But that's our challenge, isn't it? That's our challenge in practice. Life is in impermanent, or we can say that the, the nature of life is that it's fleeting, the momentariness of life. Then turn the words around. Instead of talking about emptiness, we can talk about interbeing. The nature of life is that it's fleeting in time, and the nature of all things is that there's interconnectedness there. Mm -hmm. And we either resist it and we struggle, or we don't resist it and we enjoy the exhilarating ride. Mm -hmm. We can dance to the music of, of time, or we can try and find the off switch to the music. No one's ever found it. <laughs> so what we do here in session is that we, 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 we don't have the same clarity of prajna in our everyday life. We do get caught up in thoughts and busyness and so on. We don't necessarily see what is really there. And then as we do, do session, we can't help but start to see what is really there and to see the fleetingness of life. And almost we, despite our attempts to resist it, we just get caught up in the stream. We start to dance to the music of time instead of resisting it. And when we have that experience, that's where the despond falls away. Nothing's changed about our life, but the despond has fallen away. We start to dance. And what our challenge is when session ends and we go back into our everyday life, we go back into a life in some ways which seems kind of ordered and has its reference points. We have a home, you know, and we have a family or a relationship that gives us some sense of permanence. And we have a place of work that we go to and we come back and we commute from. And we measure our time through clocks and so on. We have all our reference points. We have all our ideas that we believe in political persuasions or values or likes or dislikes. When you do session, as you'll find, all your reference points just go. There's, there's, no, there's no anchor anywhere. It's like if you're riding on a cloud and you threw out an anchor, there's nothing to hold on to. The choice is ours. We can either resist it, or we can dance with the music of time.